Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hi, it's Fraser here. And it's Tom. Two thirds of the Spike podcast. I know we say this every week, but before today's episode, we just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who donates to us. Spike is free. We want to keep it free and it's donations that allow us to do that. One-off donations are absolutely brilliant, but the best way you can help us is by giving a monthly donation. Even something like £5 a month can make the world of difference to us at Spiked. It's really easy to do. Just go to spiked-online.com, hit the big red donate button in the top right of the homepage and just fill in your details. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week we have Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello, hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, Boris and Brexit, Jihadi Jack, and an Edinburgh Fringe joke about Tourette's. The Prime Minister says the backstop is anti-democratic. And then of course I want a deal, and I think we can get a deal. The problem seems pretty much as intractable after two days of talks. Boris Johnson and President Macron. Comme le backstop I want to be very clear. In the month ahead, we will not find a new withdrawal agreement that deviates far from the original. This week, Boris Johnson wrote to the President of the European Council to call on the EU to reopen Brexit negotiations. Johnson's priority is to bin the Northern Ireland backstop. The backstop is designed to avoid a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. But, if activated, it would tie the whole of the UK to EU rules and institutions without any say in their governance. A worse position than remaining in the EU. Johnson has also met with Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron to put his case across. But even if Johnson succeeds in removing or altering the backstop, the withdrawal agreement on offer still does not deliver a meaningful Brexit. Tom, could Boris be about to betray Brexit? Well, I think all of that's as everything at the moment, is kind of very much up in the air, you know. And in a way, I think on the question of the renegotiation, it's just quite clear that on many levels, to use a very tired phrase from the last few years, nothing really has changed. So Boris Johnson is obviously going to... EU leaders, Angela Merkel um, and Emmanuel Macron ahead of the G7 this weekend, calling for getting rid of the backstop. It's quite clear that that has been given quite short shrift in many EU capitals. You saw Donald Tusk reject the letter that Boris sent pretty strongly. Angela Merkel, we're recording this on Thursday morning, was last night, seemed to be taking a more kind of conciliatory tone, suggesting that the backstop could be sorted out within 30 days. But as a lot of people have pointed out, she's not saying the backstop will be removed. Mm. Um, If anything, I think Sam Coates from Sky made this point. It's kind of an arch remark. It's like we expected to sort this out within two years and here you go, Britain, do it in 30 days. So it's almost, it's a bit of a taunt in the kind of strange sort of way. So I think anyone taking that news to happily is going to have a rude awakening at some point. Macron, as we all know, has taken a much tougher line on these things. He gave like a two-hour press conference this week where he's spending a long time kind of admonishing Britain and its stance on Brexit. So that's clearly not going to go anywhere. But again, the big thing, as you alluded to in your um, introduction there and about whether Boris is about to betray Brexit, is that even if he managed what seems like a kind of Herculean task to get rid of the backstop, which so much of Europe now have invested so much of their political capital in, 
even if he was able to do that, which is a huge ask, the backstop is one of many things wrong with the withdrawal agreement mm. um, from the perspective of Brexit in relation to, as Martin Howe QC has pointed out, perpetuating ECJ jurisdiction, tying us to state aid and competition rules for long after we leave, perhaps even mandating fishing quotas. There's so many things in that document um, which are not just anti-democratic, but frankly a bit of a humiliation in terms of um, the agreement that Theresa May has drafted. So what we're essentially looking at is the fact that even in Boris Johnson's very unlikely best case scenario of renegotiating the withdrawal agreement sans backstop, it's still going to be a betrayal of Brexit. So I think that leaves us um, in a position in which, again, not very much has changed over these past few days. Ella? Well, I think it was in your column this week, Tom, where you pointed out the fact that Boris Johnson has been given us clues and hints along the way that actually he's not the guy that perhaps some thought he was to champion no deal, to be really cut and dry about this and forceful. By that quote that you use that he keeps saying, by preparing for no deal, you get a deal. Mm. So, you know, that I think if you're smart, you'd recognise that that's him saying that he's not going to be the person who really um, fights for Brexit, fights for a clean Brexit, a hard Brexit or wherever it's called. I mean, I've been away for the last two and a half weeks and managed to not look at any news in relation to Brexit. And then I came back turned on the Today programme and it was like I'd never left. So mm. it's the same discussion. And that kind of made things clear, which is that we can talk about what Boris Johnson does when he meets Macron. And I'm sure there'll be lots of think pieces about how uh, his strategy is being received in Europe, what the European Union is going to say, whether or not they're going to go back and reopen the deal. All these things have been discussed again and again and again for the last weeks, months and years, as we know. Yeah. So the question is, what can be done about ensuring that Brexit happens at this point? And I think the, the goalposts always change about whether or not it will actually happen. I think it's likely that it might do, but it will definitely be in the form of a Theresa May Frankenstein style deal mm. um, rather than no deal. And that's a shame because actually, as you pointed out in your column, Fraser, the reality of no deal wouldn't be the disaster that people are making it out to be. And actually, yeah. as Phil Mullen has written also on Spiked over the past few months, it could be something that produces an exciting opportunity for some change. So it's a rather depressing picture that you realise that most politicians, and certainly that includes Boris Johnson, don't have the guts or the nous or the ambition to make something good out of Brexit. I think that's right. And, you know, obviously we've had the last few weeks of posturing from Boris Johnson saying, you know, we're ready for no deal, we're preparing for, for no deal. And you just think to yourself, well, why not just embrace no deal? Why not just go for it, tell the public that no deal is the best option. The public are generally in favour of no deal. There was a poll this week that showed no deal having a 17-point lead over revoking Article 50 and scrapping Brexit. So why not just just go for it? But at the same time, what's interesting is that the you know European capitals and politicians across Europe are quite wise to the fact that a lot of um, Boris's kind of no deal rhetoric has been directed in almost entirely at a domestic audience. They're not even taking it seriously. I mean, the other thing that's frustrating is that within our own, never mind what Macron or Merkel or any of members of the European Union think about what's going on with our preparations for no deal, ourselves within the government seem to be completely confused. I mean, we had Operation Yellowhammer that was leaked and had all these crazy, scary scenarios of devastation and no medicine and no food and blah, blah, blah. Um, and then listening to 
uh, David Davis speaking on the Today program this morning, Thursday morning, um, says, well, essentially, <laughs> he said that they didn't speak at all while drawing up this document to the Department for leaving the EU. So internally with, within the government, they have no clue of what's going on or have no sense of how to make a good good deal out of no deal which is quite frightening. Yeah, and, and the, re- the government's response to Yellowhammer was incredibly uh, revealing. You know, rather than playing it down and saying, look, these are worst case scenarios, which is the truth. You know, these, if you read these documents, it has worst case scenario, worst case scenario, unmitigated, things like that written um, all over it. Those, those are the kind of caveats that appear everywhere. Rather than say, no deal is not going to be a disaster, we can prepare for this, we can do X, Y and Z to mitigate these problems. They were more focused on the fact that it was a leak and they don't, they didn't want to respond yeah. to the leak. They wanted to know who was to blame for the leak. And it's taken, as you say, a f- there are a few ministers that dismissed it as, you know, project fear, but couldn't really go into detail and explain why this was all rubbish and why we could really um, overcome no deal. And, you know, not only could they not say that no deal is not a problem, they have been completely unable to say why no deal is actually going to be beneficial for the UK, mm. why, it would be, why it would be good in the long run for British democracy and all of those things. And it's not even hard to rebut these points because, you know, as you pointed out in your piece about the yellow ham- hammer stuff, Fraser, if you actually dig into it, you actually start to see the fact that, again, preparations have really reduced a lot of the fears and a lot of those worst case scenarios. Mm. One of the examples you pull out is that um, at the end of last year, the Mail on Sunday had a story that um, Michael Gove was finally convinced to back Theresa May's soft Brexit deal because he had been given a yellow hammer briefing, which had suggested that we'd run out of clean drinking water in the event of no deal. And yet the documents that the Sunday Times got their hands on um, demonstrated that basically they were convinced that everything was going to be fine in the event of no deal because preparations mm. have taken place since. And as we all know, um, both in terms of Philip Hammond um, withholding funding, as well as Theresa May wanting to make no deal sound as terrifying as possible in order to bounce people into voting for a deal. It's quite clear that since then, you know, preparations have been made and things have started to change. And it's just interesting because there's so much kind of chatter about all of this, but then there's so little discussion about actually the reality on the ground. On the other side of the border, the head of the Port Boulogne, Calais, um, Jean-Marc Poississeau has been saying for ages that it's not really going to be a an issue earlier this month, he had a great quote in the Telegraph in which he said the catastrophism of many people talking about, you know, Calais being backed up and Dover being backed up was cellar bullshit. <laughs> so again, there's just this kind of massive um, gap between what people are actually saying on the ground, what it's actually talked about in these documents and what the reality is. And it's just so obvious that in the same way that we had all of these ridiculous scare stories in the run up to Brexit, talk about again, instant recession, you know, businesses leaving, all these problems emanating, you know, ISIS celebrating, as we might talk about later, all of these crazy things that were said to happen about Brexit. We're now just seeing it kind of pushed on to no deal and and revved up in the run-up to it. But the question, as we've all talked about already, is the fact that um, does Boris Johnson have the steel or even the means considering what's going on in Parliament to actually take us out? And that's, to put it nicely, a very open question at this point. Yeah, and just on um, the Yellowhammer point again, the Dover-Calais delays are basically the basis for pretty much all the other scare stories. And so once you mm. debunk that, then the stories about no clean water, no medicines, um, all f- kind of fade away. I mean, there's basically only one other story that's new in the Yellowhammer document, which is that we might run out of fuel. And that's actually related to actually the reduction of tariffs after Brexit. And that's a problem that the government can solve by changing tariffs. You know, that's a problem that could be worked out again. But other than that, everything is based on blockages at Dover and Calais. I think all of this 
catastrophizing around no deal makes you realize that if it is true that we have to avoid leaving the European Union in order to avoid utter destruction of life as we know it, whether that be um, <laughs> through dying of thirst or lack of medical attention, then it, it just only strengthens the argue for Brexit in my point of view, because it's saying, you know, can it really be true that our entire political system and way of life is tied up in a relationship with an from our point of view and Spike's point of view, undemocratic institution mm. that's been around for uh, less than a century, far less than a century. <laughs> mm. I mean, that's crazy. And people, they don't actually believe that, I think. And that's the irritating thing that underlying this, um, whether it's based in fears about no deal or fears about immigration or, as The Guardian published this morning, fears about xenophobia rising in schools as a result of Brexit. All of that is just a real fear of change. Mm. And I think that, the political point in all of this is we have to keep pushing for the benefits of change, the desire for change and the real need for it. Because one thing to come out of this is if nothing changes and we remain the same and I still turn on the radio to hearing the same discussions about Brexit, then I think that's far worse than any kind of uh, hiccups or challenges that potentially a disruption like No Deal might bring. Hi everyone, it's Brendan O'Neill here with an exciting announcement. In October, we'll be doing a special live episode of The Brendan O'Neill Show. I'll be joined on stage by the legendary Rod Little. You won't want to miss this. It is part of an event called Podcast Live in London on the 5th of October, and you can join me and Rod between 2.30 and 3.30pm. Tickets are now available at podcastlive.com. There are two types of tickets. You can buy tickets for just the Brendan O'Neill show, or you can buy an all-day ticket, which includes access to all the other podcasts at Podcast Live. Whichever ticket you choose, whether it's an all-day or a single show, when you go to podcastlive.com, make sure you click the link below the Brendan O'Neill show logo, as that is the only way you can guarantee a seat for our podcast. So that's the Brendan O'Neill show with me and Rod Little live at Podcast Live on the 5th of October. Don't miss it. Jack Letts, who left Britain for Syria in 2014 when ISIS declared a caliphate, has been stripped of his British citizenship. Jihadi Jack fought on the front line with ISIS and even offered himself up as a suicide bomber on social media, he said he was an enemy of the West, that he hated his family for the sake of Allah, and that he wanted to decapitate a British soldier. Tom, what do you make of this um, punishment for Jihadi Jack? Well, I think a lot of people kind of clutching their pearls on this are just slightly detached from reality. You know, this is someone who's trying to call on his British citizenship or his Canadian citizenship, he's a dual citizen, um, as a means through which he should, you know, be given certain rights, etc. But this is someone who renounces citizenship, effectively. Mm. He um, joined an organisation that wants to wage war on the West and all that it stands for. I remember he was asked in an interview a couple of years ago, um, whilst he was still um, far less um, contrite, shall we say, about um, whether or not he was a terrorist. And he said something like, do you mean the English government's definition that anyone that opposes a non-Islamic system and man-made laws, then of course, by that definition, I'd say that I'm a terrorist. This is <laughs> this was his, his worldview at one point. Mm. And also, it's just been striking the kind of 
sob story he's trying to sell at the moment, which is so galling. You know, there's this quote from, a, I think it was a Sky News interview where he says, you know, I went to Syria and accidentally ended up in a mafia. And as many people kind of talk about on Twitter, you know, we've all been there. You know, yeah, you go yeah. out for a night out, you wake up, and suddenly, you know, you're applauding beheadings. This is a ridiculous, and it's interesting how it kind of echoes as well, that kind of bizarre mix of, uh, you know, entreaty to Britain, but also entitlement that Shamima Begum had as well, which mm. is really, really quite striking. And I think, of course, we should definitely not go out of our way to help this individual. There's huge questions here about what happens to these people. And I think that's something that does need to be um, need to be dealt with. There's all kinds of different ideas that are flying around that people need to talk about. But I don't think anyone can take lightly um, how much these people betrayed us, how much of a threat they still pose to people yep. where they are, and particularly if they came home. And the fact that we need to treat this with the utmost seriousness because of what it represents and also the threats that it poses because I think a lot of the kind of like high-minded appeals to bringing back is a lot of people not actually taking seriously um, all of those questions that these jihadists who now want to come home actually pose. Ella? Well, it's interesting. You, It's been a very different discussion from the one we had in relation to Shamima Begum because obviously mm. Jack Letts was 18. So you, people can't credibly use the kind of brainwashed argument in the same way that they did with Shamima. Um, and uh, as Tom says, the way in which he's gone about talking about his experience and talking about his aspirations to come back have been really hard to defend if you wanted to defend bringing him back. Like he said, no, I'm not innocent, no, but I just want my punishment to be ordered and this is a quote not haphazard freestyle punishment in Syria and you think well what have you been getting up oh, to exactly. for the yeah, last yeah, yeah. five years mm. like, <laughs> haphazard freestyle brutal punishment of people um, who weren't guilty at all and so you do not have any uh, love left for Jack Letts and I also haven't been enjoying particularly his um, parents disgruntlement at the fact that his citizenship has been revoked yeah. and you know the whole thing is a bit disgusting and a bit hard to deal with however I think that if you remove Jack Letts and Shmeen Begum from the picture just for a minute, if you can, and talk about the process of the British government stripping citizenship, I think there is some nuance there and there is some questions and debate to be had um, because I that I don't like either. I don't like the knee-jerk way in which um, Sajid Javid feels like he has the power to do that, even though actually I would guess that the mass of public opinion is behind him because mm. thankfully most sensible people um, agree that these ISIS fighters are abhorrent and not to be welcomed back with open arms or or kind of sympathised with. But the question of citizenship is a really hairy one, especially when we don't have a serious sense of what it means to be a British citizen in any kind of meaningful way. Um, then you think the British government making decisions like that on our behalf without any kind of consultation is worrying. Uh, yeah, I think I, I think you're right. I, I don't I, I don't have a problem with Jihadi Jack being stripped of his citizenship as a as a punishment. I mean, if anything, it's not punishment enough, of course. Mm. But there is also something alarming that it can be done so unilaterally by the Home Secretary that you know that could conceivably be seen as a problem. And it's not a problem in relation to ISIS, but it might be a relation into you know another group down the line who are not nearly as bad you brought up the difference in the discussion between um you know Shamima Begum and uh, Jihadi Jack and of course the big difference there is that Jihadi Jack is is white and 
when Shamima Begum had her citizenship revoked, we were told in, you know, no uncertain terms by many people that the reason this was allowed to happen was we live in an Islamophobic uh, society. Mm. People hate Shamima because she's a Muslim and the government is able to treat her differently. Now that um, this has happened to, you know, actually a, a white convert to mm to Islam, the discussion is rather different. There are no tears from Diane Abbott or Ashar. Ash Ash yeah. yeah. uh, nobody's really upset that people hate Jihadi Jack. And and and, and so it's almost neutralised that whole discussion in a way. Yeah. Nobody can say that it's, that it's racist anymore. It's interesting. People are still sticking to the line that they kind of sketched out where Shamim was concerned. You know, Diane Abbott has put out a statement saying that he shouldn't have had citizenship revoked, etc. But like you say, that the level of the discussion is so hugely different. Mm. And it's just so interesting because, again, it proves that point as well. When people were enraged about Shamima and didn't want her to come back and were disgusted by the fact that some people, you know, were thinking that we should welcome her back with open arms. They weren't treating this as a racial thing. No. <laughs> this is, and the fact that, again, there's been as much, you know, vitriol in response to the videos and the interviews of Jack Letts just proves that the people who were seeing race in this discussion were the people who were claiming it was all about racism, you know, and it's, I think it's completely exploded that. I think just on the question of um, what to do about these people, I, it is a really complicated area. And I think it's also quite clear that Sajid Javid and the government have been engaged in a certain level of grandstanding in relation to this. It's about making a bit of a political point. Um, for instance, I've heard some people even call into question this idea that you can't really send diplomatic people or soldiers to this part of Syria to retrieve these people. It's a relative, now that it's under the control of the Kurds, the northeast of Syria, it's a relatively in quote marks, safe place to be. There's also a lot of diplomatic complications here because obviously now he's effectively Canada's problem because he has mm. this dual citizenship. The Canadians weren't that happy about this. There was also that point during the Shamima discussion where Sajid Javid was considering pushing her on Bangladesh, a place she's never been and doesn't even have a citizenship claim to directly, um, which would have been incredibly irresponsible and um, very undiplomatic. So there's a lot of different things we have to tease out in this. But also I think we need to get real about the scale of the threat in relation to this. It's estimated that more than 400 people of national security concern have come back from Syria and Iraq. There were some figures out earlier this year that suggested only one in 10 jihadis returning from Syria have actually been prosecuted. This is a huge problem. And it was interesting seeing, commenting on this um, topic, Rukmini Kalamaki from the New York Times has written a lot about ISIS and has also followed particular cases of um, Canadian jihadis who have mm. um, come back and tried, and there's been attempts to prosecute them, is that it's very, very difficult, both in Canada and in Britain, which is not set up to deal with these kinds of crimes. If you think about how a trial usually operates, any evidence, any witnesses is a couple of continents away. And she refers to one particular case in Canada of a guy called Abu Hasefa Al-Kanadi, who'd actually admitted to her in an interview in the New York Times that he had, you know, killed people. And it just doesn't stack up. He hasn't even, you know, he's had so far no punishment. And what often happens in these situations is people are just allowed back into their nations and just put under surveillance. Yeah. That doesn't seem to be enough. And when you consider, as Mesa Gifford wrote about on Spike this week, that the Manchester Arena bomber had spent time in a war zone, then came back into Britain and committed that horrendous atrocity. You cannot be too careful in relation to these things. And whilst I know there's a, it's a huge, knotty, complicated international law discussion about what you could do in Syria in order to redress this, this is a point that Kalamaki makes. At the very least, you've got thousands of ISIS fighters there with dirt on each other. So that's yeah. something. So I think that the, the point I would make is that it's really important that we get into the nitty gritty of these arguments because there is dangers of setting precedents. There's a whole question about what citizenship means, who can take it away from you, what happens if you renounce it, etc. But there's also the stone cold reality of the threat that these people face and how the inability that we have at the moment in order to actually bring them to justice. Because if they did come back, and in many cases where they do come back, very little happens to them. 
You're listening to the Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. Swedish comedian Olaf Falafel has been asked to apologise for his award-winning joke at the Edinburgh Fringe. The joke was, I keep randomly shouting out broccoli and cauliflower, I think I might have florets. Slow T- clap. <laughs> yeah, it's a terrible joke. TV channel Dave named it the funniest joke at the Fringe. It must have been a bad year. But Tourette's charity, Tourette's Action, said it was a rubbish joke, which brought shame on Dave. Ella, what do you make of this uh, response? <laughs> Well, it was a rubbish joke. Um, you, your delivery was slightly better, but when I initially heard it read out on the radio, I didn't think about anything in relation to Tourette's. I just thought, was that the best joke they could come up with at the Fringe? And admittedly, the Fringe has year on year become more joyless um, and more censored, as we've discussed on this podcast and elsewhere on Spike before. But sure, they can call it rubbish, but the problem was obviously that they're trying to exact an apology from Olaf Falafel, who I think as of yet has not conceded to one, which is good uh, and unusual. But in relation to mocking Tourette's or, which, you know, actually there are comedians who have done that and there are people who have Tourette's who are comedians Mm. who take the mick out of their own um, condition, which is perhaps slightly different from someone else who doesn't have it doing it. But, you know, it, it's something that I think is widely recognised as being occasionally relatively funny, the fact that mm. people um, shout things out involuntarily, but also normal, sensitive people know not when not to laugh if someone is doing it outside of a comedic context. And it's just, what do you say about this other than kind of shake your head? Because it is ridiculous on the one hand, but it also shows a bit of a temperature check for where we're at with offence culture. Because if you can get so upset over such a rubbish joke about vegetables Mm. um, and try and spin it down this kind of victim route, um, and the fact that that isn't laughed at immediately, but actually makes the headlines, everyone's talking about it and everyone's actually lots of people on social media are supporting Tourette's action in their call for an apology. Shows you the kind of horribly humorless society that we are currently living mm. in, or certainly the humorless culture that mm. some people are trying to perpetuate. And it's interesting as well, because all this discussion about this was a joke at the expense of people with Tourette's, it's a pun. Yeah. The thing that's funny about it is that Florette sounds like Tourette's, mm. you know, it's nothing more deep than that. I think his show is actually called something like One Great Leak for Mankind or something like this. It's vegetable based <laughs> yeah. humor that we're talking about here. And I think it's interesting as well, because I almost can't believe that this charity were that upset about this at all. I think it's just we do live in a culture and there is a setup where you can get press, Mm. you can get attention by claiming to be offended by something. There's currency in that. It will generate a new cycle of discussion. It will get your organisation out there. I don't want to impute motives, but I just do not see how this could be seen as so terrible. And I think, again, about talking about how far we've come, I think it's interesting because I did a bit of radio on this this week and it was just hard to do it with a straight face because even as as of a few years ago, when we started writing a lot about comedy and offence and whatnot, um, you know, you might find yourself on radio having to defend Frankie Boyle's right to make jokes about kids with Down syndrome or something. Yeah. We're now down to vegetable-based puns about Tourette's. So it's a, it's a slightly concerning slide that, that you have there, which reflects the kind of literal-mindedness and the um, easy offence-taking of a lot of people. But I think it's also interesting because, you know, in it 
it was presented very much by Tourette's Action and a few others as a question of access and inclusion mm. and how at the fringe, you know, if you've got um, disabled people or people with different conditions, how are they going to feel included if these jokes are made at their expense? Whereas I think it's completely the opposite way around. You know, if you're supposed to be in a comedy audience, it should be assumed and rightly so that everyone is tough enough to deal with, you know, humour, even as humour is inoffensive as this. And um, I struggle to believe that this charity talks on behalf of everyone with this condition by assuming that they're all so thin-skinned that they can't even hear a pun that relates to their own condition. Because again, if comedy is to be inclusive, it's about treating everyone equally, surely. Yeah, and, and I think what it points to is is the way in which offence, especially around comedy, is taken not just when... I don't know, a minority group or um, a disadvantaged group is the butt of the joke. But when you're even joking about a controversial issue. So, of course, m- most people don't want to hear racist jokes, but people are offended by jokes simply about race. Mm. And the classic example of that would be Nimesh Patel when he famously was um, hurled yeah. off stage at a college gig for, um, and this is a progressive woke comedian who was making a joke about race and about homosexuality, not one that was particularly offensive. You know, if people, just to remind people, because I'm sure we've told this joke before on the show, he's talking about a gay black man and he's making the point that nobody chooses to be gay. And the joke is no one looks in the mirror and thinks this black thing is too easy. Let me just add another thing to it. Yeah. And, you know, this was considered offensive. This is a pretty... They cut his mic. <laughs> cut his mic off. Yeah, this is a pretty woke, progressive joke, making a pretty progressive point. And yet that, that was considered offensive. So you, you can't even, um, you can't even go near to these taboos anymore. That's, that's how strong the kind of woke force field is these days. And outside of the context of uh, the stage and live comedy on what you can and can't joke about, and in relation to disability or conditions and things like that especially in relation to Tourette's I think it'd be in you know to normalize these things and to make it so that it's not absolutely weird if someone does happen to have Tourette's and they can be accepted and included and all these things that I think most people want um making something out of bounds to be talked about is not the way to do that and actually funnily enough there was a really good exploration of this on first dates which is a show that I'm addicted to (laughs) where um there was uh, two guys on a date and one of them had Tourette's and they talked about how it was much better if the other person laughed about it or acknowledged it yeah. rather than um, pretending like it wasn't happening when this guy was whistling and shouting obscenities. And, uh, you know, they're just giving people a little bit more leeway to actually feel like it's okay to be joked about and feel like they're not being treated like they're wrapped in cotton wool is a much more progressive way to look at things like that rather than being really hush-hush and oversensitive about things. That's a way to make people feel different and other rather than feel included. You've been listening to The Spike Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, why not give us a rating, a review, or even a donation? We'll be back next week, but for more great Spiked content, just go to spiked-online.com.